Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. I can gauge your status in the late modern world with incredible precision by asking a simple question. How many of the people you interact with every day know your extended family? And the more people for whom you can say, yes, every day I'm with people who know where I came from, who my parents were, who my grandparents were, the lower your status, the lower your rewards in the modern world. The story of the late modern world is the trade of personhood for power. Thanks for listening to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on listener-supported Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe, and you know, it was about a year ago that COVID-19 started spreading here in the U.S. The pandemic has led to increased levels of isolation, anxiety, and depression. But the reality is that even before COVID-19, all those issues were running at high levels throughout our communities. If you've listened to Q Ideas for any length of time, we've dealt with these issues through a variety of talks. Well, today, we want to revisit one of those talks from about three years ago from the Q 2018 conference. This one, Gabe, from your longtime friend, Andy Crouch. Now, if you haven't heard of Andy Crouch, I want to encourage you to read some of his book. He's written some amazing books. One of the profound books that he wrote that was very influential in my life was called Culture Making. The subtitle, Recovering Our Creative Calling, was a book that that helped lay out for people the idea of Christians being involved, not just in consuming the culture or critiquing the culture when we don't like what we see coming out of it, but recognizing our opportunity to have agency in actually creating more culture. And he helps us break down that culture idea. So it's not just something out there where we think culture is, is going to the opera or something that, that feels out of reach maybe for some or creating some beautiful work of art. Those are all forms of culture. But he breaks it down to the blue jean and the tennis shoes and, and the fashion that we might wear or the phones that we're using or the types of books that we're reading and writing, the kinds of magazines we create, the music that we create. He helps us understand that we actually can change the tide if we don't like things that are happening in culture by creating more of it. Well, in order to do that well, we have to understand the context. We have to understand what is happening around us. We have to be smart. You know, for Q, we've always talked about this idea that part of our idea of how Christians can engage culture is first by a posture of staying curious, but then also thinking well. And then after that, we advance good. Well, Andy's talk today, I think, is going to help us think better. It's going to help us really understand what is happening around us, what's happening to us. And we're going to start to have new language about how we can engage in a world that's feeling more lonely than ever, more anxious than ever, maybe more depressed. And ultimately, we're meant to flourish. Our heart, soul, mind, and strength are meant to flourish. And yet culture is asking us to undermine some foundational and fundamental truths that do not allow us to flourish. So Andy's going to expose those, and then he's going to encourage us. He's going to encourage us on how do we overcome these in our own life, because if we can't in our own life be fully human, be fully present, be the kinds of people that 
adopt these ideas into our daily interactions, then there's not a lot of hope for others to start to catch that vision again. So let's listen in, take some notes, get a pen and paper, grab your moleskin or a journal and take some notes and and see what you think and how this is going to impact you. Let's listen now. I've been thinking for the past uh, couple of years, I guess, about the three revolutions that made the world that all of us live in. The first, it goes back quite a ways, back to maybe 1397 when the Medicis found the first bank. It's the financial revolution. The first revolution that made the modern world was when wealth shifted from being rooted primarily in land to being primarily found in money and the fungibility and transferability of money. And then we think about uh, maybe the best known uh, technological revolution, the Industrial Revolution, which is a revolution of work. And in the Industrial Revolution, we go from work, which for all of human history was done by bodies, human bodies and animal bodies, domesticated animals tended by human beings. And now work that used to be done by bodies is now done by engines. And then in the 20th century, really the middle of the 20th century, we get the next great revolution. It's the computational revolution. You can mark it by the publication of Claude Shannon's paper on the theory of information in 1948. And knowledge, which for all of human history has been a matter ultimately of wisdom, passed down from generation to generation, how the world works, how to conduct yourself in the world. And now through computation, we have a completely new kind of knowledge that we could call information. The primary obvious result of these three revolutions has been unbelievable prosperity. But I've been thinking about a paradox, which is that in the midst of all this abundance and prosperity, there seems to be something not quite right. I wonder if what's going on in all three of these revolutions is a kind of trade of personhood for power, which is to say that as we went through these revolutions, we replaced a personal form of human engagement with the world and human actualization in the world with an impersonal form that is far more powerful. So this is very clear in the invention of the money economy because money is basically an impersonal medium of exchange. It's a way to exchange value with other human beings without having to be embedded in relationship with them. So I go to the convenience store uh, in our part of Pennsylvania. It's called Wawa. Uh, We are very loyal to our Wawa's in uh, the mid-Atlantic states. And I walk into Wawa, and I'm there to get my snack. And I have no idea who this person is behind the counter. Uh, I've got my Walker's shortbread or whatever. I've got my credit card, or now I can just wave my phone in the general direction of the payment terminal. And Wawa gets what it wants. It gets the money. I get what I want. I get the snack. The cashier gets paid by Wawa. I never learned that person's name. That person doesn't know my name. And I assure you that there are people at Wawa working on getting rid of that counterpart person behind the counter because they're really rather vestigial at this point. It's a perfectly impersonal transaction. It's so normal to us that we forget that at any other time in history, and indeed for billions of people today, the idea that you would live in this disengaged way, that all your transactions would be mediated impersonally, is unthinkable. Because this is the overthrow of what we would call traditional culture, in which all wealth was held in personal relationship and stewarded through generations in the land that was the foundation of every agricultural society. And all work 
was done by persons in relationship with each other, often tending animals to whom they'd often give names and who they would care for together as family and community. And all knowledge was handed on from person to person. And now we do our work without having to be personal. We get our information. I mean, when you want to find out something, you go to Google. You don't go to another person. What do they know? This is not the world that Jesus of Nazareth lived in. Jesus went back to his hometown to preach, and he says some kind of surprising things. And what people say in response is, this is Joseph's son. In fact, they know the whole lineage of Jesus. It's preserved for us in the opening chapter of of Matthew and of Luke. This is Joseph's son. How many of you know of my father and my mother? If you happen to know that their names are Wayne and Joyce. I don't believe there's anyone here who knows them. And the reason you don't know these names is that I'm a winner in the modern world. Because to win in the modern economy is to be liberated from the conditions and connections with which you started your life. And it's to be known without being known in these embedded, connected communities. In fact, I can gauge your status in the late modern world with incredible precision by asking a simple question. How many of the people you interact with every day know your extended family? And the more people for whom you can say, yes, every day I'm with people who know where I came from, who my parents were, who my grandparents were, the lower your status, the lower your rewards in the modern world. The story of the late modern world is the trade of personhood for power. And this leads to, I think, a way to understand the great paradox of our time, the great abundance and prosperity, and yet the great sense of disease. I've had the privilege of hosting, over the years, guests from other parts of the world, people who uh, come from places where these three revolutions have not fully played out. And I've gotten into the habit of asking guests from Uganda or El Salvador or Southeast Asia, when they come to visit the United States, what do you notice about my country that I might not notice as someone who's lived here my whole life? And there's one answer that's just so consistent, I've come to expect it. I remember the first time I heard it from my friend Zach, who visited from Uganda. I said, Zach, what do you notice about the United States? He said, I notice how lonely it is. That is the most true thing I've ever heard about my culture, and I never could have said it myself. But as soon as it was named, I was like, oh, this is exactly what it's like to live in this world, this lonely world. Vivek Murthy was Surgeon General of the United States uh, for a number of years, just finished his term in 2017. He wrote this in the Harvard Business Review just in September of 2017. During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. Modernity is a great place to have power. It's not a great place to be a person. Now, here is the fascinating thing. Because actually all three of these revolutions, in a way, happened once before. All three of them, in a very significant way, happened at the time of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the first empire to systematically mint coins, to create coinage as a medium of exchange and use it throughout the empire, largely to salary the standing military that served the generals, the Caesars, eventually the uh, the emperors. The Romans, of course, didn't have engines in the way we do, hydrocarbon and steam engines, but they did have engines, and they had engineering. They had the ability to leverage force in ways that vastly expanded their ability to build, to construct uh, cities and and other works of of incredible technical sophistication for the ancient world. 
And because the Romans eventually conquered the whole Mediterranean rim, they absorbed the knowledge from the world of Greece and the world of North Africa, and all that was brought into these extraordinary libraries of uh, high Roman Republican Empire. And this created incredible prosperity and incredible abundance, especially for the few whose names we still remember, the philosophers and generals and leaders and writers and poets who made a name for themselves in the abundance and the new flowering of humanity that was possible in the Roman Empire. But the distribution of personhood in the Roman Empire was profoundly unequal. Very few people were fully persons, and I mean that in a kind of literal way. Very few people were recognized as a persona, the Latin word from which we get person that's a legal term in Latin, that means someone with the full standing in law and society to be recognized as a full human being. Only the pater familias, the head of the complex Roman household, counted as a person. And everyone else lived in various degrees of personhood, from children who could aspire to inherit their father's status, to women always treated as property of the pater familias, and then, of course, to maybe 20 or 25% of the Roman Empire who were slaves, not so much by virtue of race, but by virtue of commercial or military misfortune, who were stripped of family, stripped of community, treated as property. And one of the most interesting things is, is what happened to the names of slaves. Because the Romans were very practical people. And if you really didn't have any prospect of ever becoming a person, they didn't really bother with a name. So you were, if you were male, you were often just named by your birth order. Third, fourth, fifth, Tertius, Quartus, Quintus. Or maybe you'd have a baby born to a slave woman. That child would always be a slave. And so you just decided to call them useful in Greek, Onesimus. This brings us to what is to me the most sociologically stunning chapter in the whole Bible. It's the least preached upon chapter of the most preached upon book in the New Testament, the Epistle to Romans, and it's Romans 16. And the reason we don't often preach on it is it's basically just a collection of greetings by name to a whole bunch of people that Paul knows or knows of, even though he's never been to Rome, and he wants to greet them by name. And it's an astonishing collection, Phoebe, Prisca and Aquila, Andronicus and Junia, uh, Herodian, Persis, Rufus. And all of these people, Roman names, Greek names, male names, female names, names that are clearly high status, names that are clearly low status, free names, names associated with slavery, all of them are kind of jumbled together in this set of greetings that Paul wants to personally connect with each of these people. And the most astonishing verse in Romans 16, to me in some ways the most astonishing verse in the whole Bible, comes near the end. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Who is this? This is the scribe, the amanuensis, the person who's been sitting, taking dictation. Probably early in life, he acquired literacy, probably as a slave. He may or may not be a slave at this time. He's low status. He's there to take down in fair hand the words of free men. And at some point, Tertius realized, realizes that Paul has stopped dictating and is looking at him. And Paul says, Tertius, you should greet them. You're a brother. What's his name? Tertius. Third. And third writes this. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, in whose house we're staying, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Greets you. And so does our brother, Quartus. Fourth. Maybe Tertius's brother. Number three. Number four. Now staying in the home of Gaius, 
having meals with Erastus, and all of them by name, greet by name their brothers and their sisters in Rome and hand the letter to Phoebe to take to Rome. It's the most astonishing moment in the Bible for me in some ways. Every one of us, the moment we were born, we were looking for a face. We were born, and in the shock and surprise of birth, we opened our eyes and we looked for a face because until we see a face, until another sees us, we do not know who we are. And we look for someone who would look at us. In the words of uh, the psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, my friend, every human being, their deepest drama is looking for someone who is looking for us. And we're in this room because someone, some face found our face and locked eyes with us, and we were given a name. But at some point in every human life, the gaze shifts, the face disappears. No one is looking for us. That's loneliness. And in some lives, that happens very early, even just in the moments after birth, as a glance is given, and then someone says, this is number three. Number four. And I imagine what it was like for Tertius to realize that Paul was looking at him, that Paul was seeing him, that he was a brother. And this was the revolutionary act of the early church. In an impersonal world, to recognize persons of every possible status, to see them all and know them all by name and name them all as brothers and sisters. Is it any wonder that the early church grew. We're not done with revolutions. The 21st century will bring the next one. It'll be the biological revolution in which life will no longer be begotten, conceived in the most profound intercourse of persons, but life will be made. That will be the next frontier of power. And in an impersonal world, you know, we have lots of ways of talking about renewing and restoring culture, it comes down to something very simple. In this world, and in the world that's coming, the restoration of culture is the recognition of persons. That is what the early Christians did for Rome. It is what we must do today. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons from Faith Radio. And what a great talk from Andy Crouch called Overcoming Our Greatest Affliction. As I mentioned before, that talk came from about three years ago from our Q 2018 conference. But Gabe, it really still speaks to us today. I hope you're kind of still in that mode where you're going, wow, that was pretty amazing. That was a convicted call to other Christians to really recognize what is happening in the context around us. Andy does it in such an arresting way, and I always love just listening to the research, the thought, the history, bringing it all together for us to better understand the moment that we're in, and then to challenge us as leaders that we have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity to to really regain some ground that maybe has been lost. And so I think for each of us, it's about trying to evaluate how have we participated in this? How have we maybe exchanged our own personhood for power? You know, in our Western society, in the modern world, as Andy describes, we're in, we're in a place where having power is the main thing, but it's not, as he said, it's not a great place to be a person. And I think about even our young people. I think about my children, teenagers, who are dealing with 
sometimes not realizing you know what it means to be a human anymore in a world where there's so much technology it's absorbing our time our energy it's at the palm of our hand we we have as kevin kelly pointed out one time in a previous q talk you know we have five thousand years of invention and technology that sits literally at our fingertips and, and then our kids have this access and there's some great things that come from that but there's also a lot of consequences unintended consequences that come when we're so consumed with technology and the connectivity of that versus what it means to be human and what it means to sit across from somebody and look them in the eyes and ask them how they're really doing and listen to them and respond and have empathy. And so in some ways, our kids are losing empathy. They're losing an understanding of what it means to be a person. We've talked about this a lot at Q. And I think if you're interested in that topic and exploring it even further, we have a talk by Andy that he recently gave called Managing Technology, where he actually describes how he sets up technology in his own home and what kind of spaces they're trying to create to help create personhood, to create space for people to connect with one another, to listen, to talk, to be inspired, to create, to do all of the things that we as human beings are meant to create. And so in this talk, I think Andy just reminded us again of the importance of these ideas, that these are actually countercultural ideas in our cultural moment, but they're also really simple ideas. I don't, I don't feel like he's calling us to do something incredibly complex to say, hey, let's show up and be people. Right? If that's what it means to be countercultural today, to just show up and actually care for others, have empathy, learn how to be a person that's going to listen and going to respond and going to care for and have compassion and actually be a part of other people's lives and serve other people and sacrifice our own power for the sake of others. If that's what it means to be a Christian, if that's what it means to be countercultural today, I think the world actually looks at that and smiles and says, I need that. We don't have that. I don't know anybody else living that way around me except you Christians. It reminds me of this, the, the letter was called the so-called letter to Diognetus, who's an emperor, where the letter was trying to describe Christians in the second and third century. And the final line of that letter, uh, he, he writes, trying to describe these people that nobody could quite understand why they lived the way they lived, the way that they operated. You know, one of the lines in there talked about how they live on earth as, as uh, citizens, but their citizenry is actually in heaven. But the final line says, what the soul is to the body that Christians are to the world. How profound what the soul is to the body that Christians are to the world. And what if it was us that was described that way? What if people today said, man, we need these Christians, not we hate these Christians, or the Christians are creating all the problem in the world, or, or as our book, Good Faith, with David Kinnaman said, religion is part of the problem. That's what 46% of Americans think right now. Well, what if instead of that, they said, no, these Christians, they're, they're helping remind us of what it means to be human, what it means to, to actually be creative, what it means to dream, to have imagination, to have empathy for one another, to care for one another, to bring people together instead of dividing them, to instead of labeling people, start to look at people with all of their potential, instead of judging people and being self-righteous, being the kind of people that actually starts to see people as being made in the beautiful image of God. Yeah, great thought, Gabe. Well, again, this is Q Ideas. And you know, talks like these and so many more are available for you to watch and learn from anytime on the Q Media platform at qideas.org. Just a great way to, as we say, stay curious, think well, 
and advance good, helping others to do that as well. As a subscriber, along with Talks from conferences and other various events, you can take in a lot of specially curated content, movies, podcasts, and things such as that. Plus, you have the inside track on a lot of the Q&A virtual town halls and summits we've been doing thanks to the pandemic, including the recent Q&A virtual town hall. Now, just a few minutes ago, Gabe mentioned Andy Crouch's talk called Managing Technology, and that's up on the Q Media platform, too. And since we have a few minutes, let's listen to a portion of that talk. This is where technology wants to go. A single beautiful button that will cost you $700 and then $35 every other week for subscription. How would I describe this? I describe it as the ultimate movement from tools to devices, but beyond that to what I'd call easy everywhere, which is the dream of the technological world. The device paradigm, you might say, says your life can be easy everywhere. It can just work where to have what I want. I don't need skill, don't need effort, don't need attention, don't need risk, just a button. Now, what people sometimes say about technology is they say, well, technology isn't good or bad, it's just neutral. And I understand what we're trying to say when we say that, but I don't think it's right if you think of neutral as being like a car that's in neither drive nor reverse and is just waiting to go wherever you want. Technology wants to go somewhere. It has a drive toward easy everywhere. As a Christian, I don't think I want to say, actually, that things are neither good nor bad. I don't think there's anything neutral in all of creation, certainly not culture. It's meant to be very good. But of course we know that when we distort it and use it based on distorted pictures of God and distorted pictures of God's image bearers, it becomes not good. So the real question we ought to ask about this easy every world of technology is what is it very good for? And what is it not good for? And again, that was Andy Crouch. Boy, he can make you think. We have several talks by him, plus so many, many others that you can listen to anytime, maybe doing so with others and provoking some important conversations. But again, these great talks and so much more available when you subscribe to the Q Media platform at qideas.org. Subscriptions start at $7.99 a month. Well, Gabe, that's about all the time we have for this week. Until our next episode, I hope you have a great week. I hope you'll share this with friends. I hope you'll share this with family members. I hope you'll share Andy Crouch's talk. Go out and read more about Andy. Learn more about his books. Uh, watch more of his talks at qideas.org or watch this talk this week at qideas.org. And I hope that encourages you and inspires you and those that you love. Have a great week. Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.